0: It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Mark Maurer, who is the executive director of The Sentencing Project, a national organization based in Washington, D.C. that promotes criminal justice reform. His books include The Meaning of Life, The Case for Abolishing Life Sentences, co-authored with Ashley Nellis. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights has just released a report that draws on testimony by Mark Maurer on the impact of felony disenfranchisement. Mark Maurer Welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the work you're doing. Uh, Let's start with the topic of life sentences. Aren't those the good, humane sentences that the rest of the world uses instead of the evil death sentences?
1: Well, no. You know, we use both death sentences uh, to a degree that's unknown in the democratic world today. The United States is one of the last holdouts among democratic nations in not abolishing the death penalty. Uh, And life imprisonment, along with mass incarceration and all the policies that it's brought about, uh, has just multiplied dramatically in recent decades, along with other challenges in mass incarceration. to the point today where one of every seven people in prison, 206,000 people, are currently serving a life sentence.
0: How does that compare with other countries?
1: Well, it, it's just really dramatic. Uh, so the 206,000, if you look at uh, our prison population, there are now more people serving life than the entire prison population in the United States uh, in 1970, just before the takeoff of mass incarceration. Uh, if you compare the United States with uh, nations in Western Europe, it's dramatically different, too. Uh, looking at life without parole, comparing the United States with the United Kingdom, we have about five times the population of the United Kingdom, and yet we have 1,000 times as many people serving life without parole as in the UK. So the difference is just, you know, as dramatic as one could imagine.
0: And and part of the reason for that, I understand from your book, is that in sentencing, U.S. courts uh, take as as highly relevant past offenses, uh, whereas most places in the world don't. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely correct. Uh, You know, yes, other nations do look at your past offenses, but generally take a perspective that, okay, you've done your time for that prior car theft you are convicted of or whatever it may have been, um, so we don't need to punish you additionally for that. So if they have any incremental changes, they're relatively modest, whereas in the United States... You know, we're now in the era of three strikes and you're out policies in many states and the federal government. Um, You know, at the federal level, uh, last couple of years of his administration, President Obama issued about 1,700 sentence commutations to people serving federal drug sentences. And of those, more than 500 were people serving life without parole for a third time. Drug offense, life without parole. Now, to be fair, these were not people who were street corner sellers or smoking pot. These were people who were using, selling and dealing drugs. Nonetheless, uh, you know they're being punished uh, far more harshly than uh, people are frequently uh, convicted of more serious violent offenses. Even this is what these policies have brought us today.
0: I I noticed, Mark Maurer, though it's not really discussed in the book, there's a chart in the book that breaks things down by states, and I noticed that over 40,000 of those 200,000 people serving life sentences in the United States are in California, making up over 31% of all prisoners in California. Is is California a focus for changing this because of that?
1: Well, it certainly needs to be one. You know, in part... Uh, California has a variety of life sentences. Um, a substantial number of them were brought about in recent decades through California's three-strikes-and-you're-out policy. Uh, the policy that was adopted in California in 1994, um, it was different than that in the other 24 or so states that had a, such a policy. In the other states, it required 3 violent or serious offenses to get the maximum sentence. In California, the uh, proposal that passed said your first two offenses need to be serious or violent. Your third offense could be any felony in the state of California. So there are cases that went to the Supreme court and were rejected on their contention. It's cruel and unusual punishment in one case a man was convicted of stealing three golf clubs from a sporting goods store. He stuck them into his baggy pants and walked out the store. was immediately apprehended. Another case on two separate occasions, a man stole $153 worth of videotapes from a Kmart store as his third strike. Uh, the court rejected their argument, left it up to the legislature in California to determine sentences, and so the golf club thief got 25 to life and the videotaped thief 50 to life. Now, that's as extreme as it gets. Um, Thankfully, just a few years ago, voters in California adopted a ballot measure that scales back to three strikes policy somewhat. So now your third strike also needs to be a serious or violent offense. You can't have golf clubs or things like that. Nonetheless, this has all contributed to the rising numbers of people Uh, serving life in a variety of ways in California.
0: Given the the attention that the death sentences get, and you bring this out in the book, uh, there are special rights and and concerns and reviews uh around death sentences that there aren 't around life sentences, and yet we 've seen uh all of these uh death row inmates exonerated uh by evidence uh having been served by incompetent lawyers uh, uh, i i 'm guessing it, it seems very likely that 's even more the case with those serving life sentences, that a higher percentage of them uh, are actually factually uh, innocent. Uh, what do you what do you think uh, is the likely percentage? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, that, that certainly there's every reason to believe that that's the case. Um, you know, when it comes to death penalty defense, you know, we should not for a moment think that there are adequate resources or protections provided in death cases. You know, it's still uh, the case that huge numbers of these cases are handled by inexperienced attorneys or attorneys with limited resources or prosecutorial misconduct, a whole Broad variety of of problems that have been documented over many years. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, when you're faced with a death sentence, you do have certain legal and procedural rights. And that's why so many of the death cases go up and down through the court system. And there's appellate review and many other things like that. Uh, Unfortunately, because of organizations like the Innocence Project, You know, we now have seen well over a hundred people exonerated from their death sentence, uh, typically through DNA technology that has demonstrated their innocence. Um, So, you know, we can only imagine how close some of them came to execution. When it comes to life imprisonment, um, you know, that's pretty much the end of the story. Once you're convicted, you... If you have the resources and there are issues at your trial, you may be able to retain an attorney, to file an appeal. Um, You have no right to get DNA technology evidence or things along those lines. So the level of scrutiny is far lower than it is in in death sentence cases, Uh, and therefore, given that the numbers of people serving light is dramatically higher than those serving death now, um, there's no reason to believe that the numbers wouldn't be in the range of several thousand or so uh, if we had adequate resources to investigate these cases fully.
0: There was a, an article some years back in The Nation magazine that extrapolated from the, the small number of people uh, exonerated by the existence of DNA evidence and the right to appeal and so forth. Uh, and they suggested approximately 136,000 innocent people uh, in U.S. prisons. Uh, when you say several thousand, that seems, that seems quite a bit smaller.
1: Well, I'm speaking about life sentences alone. I I believe that prior study that was reported in The Nation looked at cases across the board. So how many people convicted of burglary or car theft or other things, you know, may have been factually innocent of the crime, yet were convicted for one or more reason. So just of that total number, which could be in the tens or even hundreds of thousands, um, it's likely that several thousand of those people were sentenced to life imprisonment.
0: We we have seen uh, documentation of of racist imbalance uh, in policing and in indicting and in convicting and sentencing. Uh, I imagine that all adds up uh, to a racial imbalance in terms of who's in prison for life.
1: Well, it certainly does. You know, if we take the most extreme cases, the capital cases, death sentences. Um, you know, we can go back to the nineteen eighties, and there's been a series of very sophisticated research, uh, reports and studies looking at the role that race plays in capital sentences. And essentially what they found over and over again is that race clearly is a factor. Uh, race of the victim turns out to be even more significant than race of the offender. So, uh, Two similar uh, murders are committed, and one it's a white person killed, another it's a black person killed. Um, <clears throat> typically the studies have found that the uh, person who killed the white person has roughly four times the odds of receiving a death sentence as the person who killed a black person, uh, all other things being equal. Um, so there's no reason to believe that we wouldn't see similar kinds of outcomes with life imprisonment as well. Again, we face the problem that there's been much fewer resources devoted to looking at this issue. We don't have the same level of studies that we do on the death penalty. Um, You know, when the Supreme Court was presented with evidence in 1987 on death sentencing and racial dynamics. It was a case called McCleskey. Uh, the Georgia case, a black man had been convicted of killing a white police officer. Uh, the court rejected the argument of racism and the outcome. They didn't quarrel with the evidence that was presented, which was very sophisticated and looked at Hundreds of uh, death sentences and uh, murder cases in the state of Georgia. They didn't argue with that, but their reasoning was um, we can't tell, or Mr. McCleskey, the defendant, can't prove that racism was a factor in his particular death sentence. And of course, you know, that's always going to be virtually impossible. You know, no judge or jury is going to come out and say, The reason we're giving you a death sentence is because you're a black man. Uh, And in most cases, this is not necessarily conscious racism. It's the racism that we all grow up with and still have within us in American society. So members of the jury and others may believe they're acting in a race-neutral way, but the overwhelming evidence across the board shows that's not the case. So we know that race still plays a significant role. Uh, the Supreme Court has set such a high bar, it's just very difficult to, to make that documentation.
0: And, and just to be clear, we do know that apart from the reasons why, uh, African Americans and other people of color are very disproportionately represented among uh, those in, in prison for life in comparison with the general population of the United States, right?
1: Very much so. Um, You know, some people would say, well, that may reflect being more involved in crime and serious crime. And that does explain part of it. But, you know, in sensing studies across the board, including for serious crimes, um, race is still a factor. It doesn't mean that in every single case a black person will get a harsher sentence than a white person. But in the aggregate, um, you know, race still permeates outcomes in the courtrooms. We've seen that very clearly.
0: We are speaking with Mark Maurer, who is the executive director at the Sentencing Project, uh, and his books include the book we are discussing, The Meaning of Life, The Case for Abolishing Life Sentences. Uh, I noticed that among the questions that the New York Times recently asked uh, the Democratic uh, primary candidates for president was their view on uh, the death penalty. Uh, And they all, or virtually All of them uh, are opposed to it. Do you expect that anyone will ever ask them about their opinion on life sentencing?
1: Well, I don't know where we're that close to that, but I think it's uh, remarkable and encouraging that even on uh, the death penalty, uh, the responses that we're seeing, you know, it was not that long ago that, um, you know, Democrats as well as Republican candidates for president, uh, you know, would. Almost always indicate their support for death penalty, um, Al Gore running in two thousand said he believed the death penalty was a deterrent uh, when Barack Obama was president. You know he said, well, there's still cases where he supported the death penalty even though he had some problems with it um, You know it typically you know has not been viewed by political consultants and others as uh, a smart thing to uh, come out and say, one is opposed to the death penalty. So, you know, I take uh, heart in the fact that now we have virtually all the Democratic candidates, you know, some to the left, some centrist, uh, all saying that they're opposed to death penalty. It's, I think, a reflection of the you know movement to challenge mass incarceration to challenge racism in the justice system and it's it's encouraging that we 've made this important step um, next of course yes i 'd like to see them take on life imprisonment and the challenges of those issues as well
0: um as you know, there are those who will argue that uh, if you're not going to have the death penalty, then you have to have life in prison without the possibility of parole in order to satisfy the irrational drive for vengeance uh, that motivates those who want the death penalty, which you are depriving them of. Uh, How do you respond to that?
1: Well, you know, if we look at other industrialized nations, they take a very different approach to that. You know, what they say is that It's not so much how much vengeance, you know, we need to encourage among people, but that, you know, we should take serious crimes seriously, and we should also have a justice system and a sentencing structure that's proportional. So, you know, virtually all of us will agree that murder should be punished more harshly than robbery, which in turn should be punished more harshly than auto theft, and so on. You know, in order for the system to be perceived as fair, we need that sense of proportion. So in many nations in Western Europe, it's very unusual, either in law or in practice, for anyone to serve more than 20 years in prison, even for the most serious crimes. So it essentially means, you know, if you're convicted of murder, maybe you'll spend 20 years in prison. If it's robbery, maybe it's 10. If it's a car theft, maybe it's two, and so on. So I think that's what needs to come across to the public, that You know, we don't need these extreme forms of punishment uh, to show that the justice system is responsive to crime, cares about victims and the like. What we need is a system that's structurally fair, that tries to eliminate bias in every way it can, uh, and demonstrates that uh, justice and fairness need to be central to how we set up these systems.
0: And that's the proposal you make in the book, correct, Mark Maurer, is that there be a 20-year cap on sentences, uh, both going forward and applied retroactively?
1: Yes, very much so. And this builds in many ways on on policies we've seen in comparable nations. Uh, It's mostly motivated by something we've known in criminology for a very long time, which is that Crime is a young man's game, as they say, and increasingly a young woman's game, that you know, young people in the ages 15 to 24 um, experience a higher risk of becoming involved in crime. This is a finding that cuts across issues of race, class, nationality, you know, whether it's hormonal or uh, peer-involved or whatever, uh, we see that crime rates rise in those risks in the late teens and early 20s, but we also know that people age out of crime quite rapidly for the most part. So by the late 20s and 30s, and certainly by the 40s and 50s and 60s, the chances of a person being involved in crime are far lower than they were for that teenager. Um, you know, the armed robber we send to prison the age of 25 for a 30 or 40 year sentence. By the time that person is 30, 35, 40, in most cases, is much less of a risk to public safety. So what that means is that life sentences produce diminishing returns for public safety. The longer we keep people in, the less additional crime we're preventing. And we're also spending enormous resources, which would be much better used for that group of 14-, 15-, 16-year-olds who are beginning to enter the high crime rate years. You know, what could we do to work with their families and communities to prevent some of those problems from developing? So that's where the 20-year maximum proposal comes from.
0: Sounds ridiculously sane and reasonable for this country. I hope it uh, finds traction. Uh, Mark Maurer, this report I mentioned from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights called Collateral Consequences, the Crossroads of Punishment, Redemption, and the Effects on Communities. We will put a link to it up at talknationradio.org. Talk about what uh, disenfranchisement is and where it came from and what uh, what the harm is that it does.
1: Sure. Well, you know, felony disenfranchisement, the loss of the right to vote for a felony conviction, in some cases, goes back to the time of the founding of this nation. You know, here we were set up as an experiment democracy, but it was a very limited experiment. The group of wealthy white male property holders granted themselves the right to vote so women couldn't vote, African-Americans, illiterates, poor people, and also people with a felony conviction – And over the course of 200 years, we've done away with all those other exclusions. And the sole major group uh, left that is not eligible to vote are those people with a felony conviction. Uh, These policies are established, you know, by each one by a state, and their states are all over the map on these. Uh, But the combination of felony disenfranchisement and the huge explosion brought about by mass incarceration, means that last year, the 2018 election, 6 million people nationally were not eligible to vote uh, in those elections. Uh, There's the racial disparities we see in the justice system then translate into disenfranchisement. So it's an estimated one of every 13 African Americans not eligible to vote. So these are issues that I think are very fundamental to questions of democracy. But at this level, it's also likely that they're affecting electoral outcomes as well, uh, certainly in the states that are the most restrictive in this regard.
0: And you believe that disenfranchisement is contributing to recidivism, to additional crime by blocking people from from effectively re-entering and joining with society? Is that right?
1: Well, exactly. And, you know, when people are released from prison, they may be on parole supervision. And we essentially say to them, "Okay, now you're living in the community. You have all the obligations and responsibilities. You have to obey the law. We want you to be working. We want to be paying your taxes and so on. Uh, And then we say, oh, and by the way, uh, we're not going to permit you to vote. So we're still going to treat you as a second class citizen. Well, this is very counterproductive. You know, if we want people coming home from prison to succeed, uh, it's in our interest to encourage them to develop reasonably strong connections in the community, so connections with families in a peer group, with the world of work or education, and so on. People who feel they have a stake in the outcome of their communities are going to be less likely to harm their neighbors. So it doesn't do anything for public safety to exclude people from the ballot box. When election day comes around, if my next door neighbor has just returned home from prison, I'd much rather have him waiting in line with me to vote at my local public school than hanging out on the street corner looking to get the trouble. You know, that doesn't help anybody to keep people out of the ballot box like that.
0: And in terms of the government uh, discriminating and shutting people out, uh, it's not just voting, right? It's also things like housing and food stamps and and other basic uh, rights and and uh, services.
1: Absolutely, you know, along with mass incarceration have come a whole number of additional barriers established by the federal government and the states. To make it even more difficult for people to uh, restore themselves in the community. One example, 1996 is part of Bill Clinton's welfare reform legislation. There's a provision in that bill that imposes a lifetime ban on access to food stamps and welfare benefits for anyone with a felony drug conviction, a lifetime ban. So you can imagine a single mother of two children who goes to prison. Uh, One of her relatives takes care of the kids. She finally comes home. She's working, taking care of her kids, but then gets laid off from her job. Well, ordinarily, then there's a good chance somebody like her would be able to rely on food stamps and welfare benefits for a few months until they can get back on their feet, uh, get another job. But now with a felony drug conviction, she's excluded from getting those benefits in most states. Uh, so what are the odds that she's going to be able to make it? And does that not pose an additional risk uh, to the community that she's going to get involved in crime again just to support her family? You know, once again, it's uh, it makes no rational sense from anybody's point of view for public safety or community development, and yet legislators, in a very mean-spirited way, uh, have adopted policies like that.
0: We've got just about one minute left. What about uh, private businesses discriminating against people who've had a felony conviction? How can that be addressed?
1: Well, you know, there are ways we can try to get at it. Uh, You know, one of the problems is that, you know, there are certain restrictions that are not reasonable. If a person has a conviction for pedophilia wants to work in a daycare center, that could be very problematic. So there are times and places where that's understandable, uh, but there are many restrictions that make no sense whatsoever. If you have a felony conviction in many states, you can't get a license to be a barber. So what the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other agencies have said to employers is two things. First, if you're going to use a criminal history It needs to be connected to the job requirements. You know, if it's just a general conviction, nothing related to the job. That's not relevant. And secondly is the recency of the conviction. Somebody who had a felony conviction six months ago is very different from someone who had one 20 years ago. And we shouldn't impose these lifetime punishments on people that just make it so difficult for them to rejoin the community.
0: Very, very well said. Our guest has been Mark Maurer, who is the Executive Director at the Sentencing Project. We will have up the links to his reports and books at talknationradio.org. Mark, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. And thanks so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org.